James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. As we continue our series on James, as we go through, uh, first we started in chapter 1, the teachings of Jesus' brother, and we began as, as seeing the importance of perseverance and not giving up. And I think it's interesting, out of all the people Jesus could have picked to be one of the authors of a letter that would go into the Bible, out of all the people Jesus could have picked to be one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, he picks his brother, his half-brother, to do that. And I don't know if you have siblings But one of the things about siblings is they know all your dirt. They know all about you. It's hard to hide from them who you really are. And it's the moments when we have our guards down is who we really are. It's when we get home at lunch and this afternoon when you're tired and you're cranky and you're stressed. That's when sometimes you show things you don't show to other people. And your family gets to see that. And James got to see that about Jesus. And so in many ways, I believe it was that that relationship that James had with Jesus that validated that he would be so committed to him as his Savior and his Lord, that he would become one of the leaders of teaching the principles of what it was to be a follower of Christ. And so he starts with the principle of never giving up, and that would be my encouragement to you. When I was in college, we, uh, part of uh, our routine was we were to go to chapel on Wednesdays and Fridays, and one of the things they said almost at every chapel was you do not term a man's greatness by how successful, wealthy, or powerful he is, but what it takes to make him quit. And giving up when God calls you to something. He wants you to persevere. He wants you to continue on. And maybe today he's calling you to persevere. Maybe through a challenge physically, emotionally, financially. He's calling you to persevere and be faithful. Don't give up because he is the author of life. And he will, he will sustain you and he will keep you if you're willing to be faithful. 
And then we looked at the importance of to be in that level of, of consistency and not giving up. We're called to resist the temptations of this world. And we're told that God doesn't tempt us, but we tempt ourselves through our own evil desires. And the importance of recognizing recognizing how uh, deceptive and deceiving the evil one is and the evil that lives in us and not to fall into those traps. And so we begin today looking at that, that principle of living that truth out in our friends and family. This past Friday, uh, I was privileged to go and to Pensacola and to be a part of my uncle's funeral. He passed on Tuesday. Uh, my uncle is the gentleman with the black cowboy hat on. That's what he was known for. His name was Billy Motes. He was born in Enterprise, Alabama. That means he's a huge Alabama football fan, and that came up at his funeral. And when I go to funerals, I'm always interested because I wonder, what is my funeral going to be like? And what do people say about you after you're gone? What are the things that they focus in on? And really, you know, that's, it's not what you wanted people to remember. It's what they do remember (laughs) that becomes your legacy and your story. And these gentlemen you see in this picture were all at his funeral, and he has an interesting story. He, was, he started there in, in his life's journey, and then he went on full scholarship to South Alabama University, uh, where then he went on to get a doctorate and become a professor. And he was a professor of business and technology at uh, JMU, which is in Virginia. And then he went from there. And that's where he met, actually, my, my brother was born. My youngest brother was born. And my, my aunt visited from San Diego. And Billy was a member of my dad's church. And that's where they met and ended up getting married. And so if my brother wasn't born, they would have never come together. It's an interesting story. Well, he becomes a professor. He goes to Indiana State. He becomes the dean of business at Indiana State. And then from there, he retired and went to Pensacola. And when he got to Pensacola, he reached out to some of his friends he hadn't seen since he was in high school. And they had all moved to retire in Pensacola. And they all became golfing buddies. And there was this full circle of life. And I tell you all that because I knew, I talked to my uncle probably once a month. And we talked about life. And one of the things I learned from my uncle, something that stuck out to me, was that he really didn't... um, He wasn't one of those people that let you knew what his achievements were. He was very successful in what he did, but you wouldn't know it unless someone else told you. And that was a powerful testimony to me that he didn't use that position. At being a dean of a major university, a lot of those people, that's the one thing they want you to know about them. And his humility was a great thing for me to see in my life and recognize. And two of the stories I walk away from the the funeral that really apply, I think, to the message today Um, is one, they golfed all the time, and one of his buddies in the picture would pick up all the broken golf tees. And so if you've ever been golfing, you know there can be a lot of broken tees. And he's like, why are you wasting so much time? You don't work for this place. Stop picking up all the broken tees. Uh, But this guy would collect all the broken tees. And then they had a conversation about it. And in the conversation, my Uncle Bill said, you know, it's it's a good picture of life. A lot of people break their tea. There's something happens that's broken in their life. And some of us have a lot of broken teas in our life. And some of us have a few broken teas in our life. But all of us have a broken tea somewhere along our life. And there's only one person that can fix that. There's only one person that can do something about that broken tea. And that's Christ. And that gentleman that he said that to brought a whole... uh, can of teas as a symbol of what Christ can do in a life. 
We can't fix our own mess. We can't fix our own problems. But Christ can make us whole, and he can save us from a lot of that brokenness that's in us. So that was interesting, and I thought that was a powerful story. And then the thing that really stuck out to me about the funeral, the thing that I take with me today is when he was three years old, he was diagnosed with a hearing problem. And at three years old, he had to get hearing aids, and he had, to get, uh, he had a speech impediment because of that. And throughout all the years growing up, uh, he had this challenge of, of speaking correctly and hearing correctly. But he never let that on to his closest friends. And it wasn't until they were golfing one day. This is 50 years later that he tells his closest friends, you don't know how self-conscious I was about my hearing aids. You don't know how self-conscious I was in middle school and high school about my speech impediment. Nobody knew he was self-confident about it. I never knew it because he was so confident as a person. And it just struck me that all of us, are there's things in our lives, there's things when we get past the surface that we don't even know we're struggling with, challenges we don't know people have. Here's someone who seems so successful and, and really had it all together, and yet he felt so insecure about these things. And, you know, I think that's a message for us. That's a message to recognize that every human being has something broken in their life, and yet only Christ can renew that in them. And that's what I believe James, what we're going to read in in chapter 2, what he's trying to teach us, what he's encouraging us to be aware of, is this principle of how do we treat each other? How do I treat you? How do you treat me? How do I treat people that are different than me? How do I treat people that, are the, that I would say are the opposite of me? How do I treat people that I meet in the world? How do I treat people that are part of my life? I think this is an extraordinarily important principle for us to learn and to live out, especially as a church, because I think this can be the most significant action that we take as a church together, is how do we treat people when they come here? How do we treat each other? So let's ask the Lord to speak to us because it's not what I say. It's what he says. I want to hear from him. I hope you're here to hear from him, that God would speak directly to our hearts, that we would understand it and be able to apply it. So let's pray. Father God, I am so thankful for your love. I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm thankful that you love us and that, Lord, um, to you, we are all open to your salvation that there's no one that is such a sinner that they cannot be saved. And we thank you, Lord, that your sacrifice, your death, burial, resurrection has enabled us to to be right, to be made whole. So, Lord, as we look at this chapter in James, as we look at how you inspired him to write this to the people of his time and to us that is timeless, Lord, we pray these words would not return void. We know they will not. But, Lord, I pray that they would penetrate past just us understanding them, but they would go to that place of action that we would be prepared to move and to do what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that you'd bless this time as we look to your word, that you would speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. To give you some brief context, uh, in the time that this is written, James is writing to a group of people. If you remember in the beginning, they've been scattered uh, because they have claimed Christ. There's been persecution. They're going through troubled times. They live in a culture where Rome is the most powerful uh, nation. They are the power of the world. And if you were not Roman, you were half a person. You were not a full person. Your life did not matter as much. And if you had wealth, 
You had power. You had authority. You were valuable. If you had no wealth, if you didn't know the right people, if you weren't born in the right family, you were close to as valueless as you can get. And so there was a a structure within that time, a social structure where the rich had value and the poor had no value, and this played out in every facet of life. There was a segregation of the rich and the poor. There was a segregation of those who had and those who did not have. And so this was very similar in many ways to what we see in the world today. I don't think things have changed significantly. Human nature has always been the powerful, the rich, have the have the, the value, and those who don't, don't have as much value, and, and that's what we see. And, and James, through the Holy Spirit, is writing to us that we don't fall into the same trap that the world falls into, that we don't fall into the same stumbling blocks that the world falls over. And so here's what he says in James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so James is bringing to light, how do we judge people? When somebody walks into the room, when someone walks into our lives, how do we judge them? And unfortunately, uh, we can fall into the traps of the world that we say, how wealthy are they? How attractive are they? How powerful are they? What can they do for me? And to the level of what they can do for me is the level that I will respect them and value them. Right? And we see that in our culture. We see that in our world. The man with the suit gets treated differently than the man who's not in the suit. And the world system is to value those who you can get something from. It is not to value them because of who they are made in the image of the Lord. And so we have to be very aware of this. We cannot deny this reality. We cannot fool ourselves into believing that we ourselves don't do this at times. We have to be aware of it. And we have to ask the Lord to help us to have his eyes and his perspective. Because in our flesh, our flesh is self-centered. Our flesh is self-driven. We will want to have what others have to give us. And we will build relationships that advance us in getting what we want. And so this has to be the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. This has to be an obedient commitment to the Lord that we consciously do not treat people based on what they can do for us. That we do not treat people of different values because of how valuable we see them to be. It's very significant, very important. I think it is something that even within the church, we need to be very much aware of. If someone comes in and is homeless and has nothing and, and has a smell and has all kinds of issues, are we to treat that person any differently than the person that owns the yacht and the buildings, and the power. Are we, to, are we to say, you're more valuable, you have a better seat, you have more say, you have more authority. I've been in many churches, unfortunately, where those who have the highest incomes have the highest voices, have the most authority. I think that is the opposite of the kingdom of God. And we need to be very careful that we do not fall into those traps. We do not fall into the deception that we value people to the level of what we can get from them.
but we value them because God tells us to value them. And we love God, and we want to be in obedience to him. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who, exploiting, who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom they belong? Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. So James puts this unique term, royal law, the royal law, and that's an interesting statement because there's really two sets of laws. A law is something you're governed by. A law is a principle you live by. A law is a boundary of protection. And there are two forms of law. There's the old law, which was given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, live into this law. And and we're told by Paul that none of us can live into that. James is about to tell us none of us can live into that law. That is the law of perfection. That is the law of God's holiness. That is the law that says if you even think something that is wrong, you have broken the law and you're condemned. But then there is the royal law. James talks of a royal law. Well, what is that royal law that he's referring to? Well, the royal law has given us to royalty. And who is the royalty? The King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, did not sin, didn't didn't break any of the Moses law, was absolute perfection, went to the cross, died on the cross, was dead three days and raised from the grave, he established a new law. That was the royal law. It's royal because he is royalty, and when you belong to him, you become part of his royalty. And the royal law is this now. You've been saved by grace through faith. Now love others as you want to be loved. Love people the way you want to be loved. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And even Jesus says, not even just that, love the way I love you. Love others the way I love you. See, it's an amazing principle because we all know how we want to be loved. It's very clarifying. I don't like to be lied to, so maybe I shouldn't lie to anyone. I don't like to be gossiped about, so maybe I shouldn't gossip about anyone. I don't like it when people undermine me or do things that distort what I say, so I shouldn't undermine or distort what they say. I don't like when I'm undervalued and underappreciated, so I shouldn't undervalue or underappreciate others. It is the royal law. It is the law of grace. It is the law of mercy. And so this new law, this new guidance for us now says, the most important thing I can do is love God, and by loving God, I must love others the way I want to be loved. And he says, when you live into this, this is grace. And what that means is, when you see someone, when you see someone who's struggling, you see someone who comes through the doors that obviously has a lot of broken T's in their life, has a lot of brokenness in their life, if you had a lot of brokenness in your life, would you want to be judged? Would you want to be treated poorly? Would you want to be told, sold, you can't sit here, you can't be with us, you're not one of us? If that was you and your life had been so broken, what would you want? You'd want to be respected. You would want to be received. And you would want to be helped. And so it's a radical shift in how we approach life. When we see the angry person at the store, when someone does something to us that's completely unjust, 
We can react in anger. We can react in hostility. We can say, that's a broken person. And if I was, they're doing this because they're broken. And if I was broken, what would I want someone to do for me? What would I want someone to do for me? Fight, attack, ridicule, demean? Or show grace and do everything in my power to point them to the truth? This is an important principle. This is a powerful principle because we get to live with the royal law. We get to live with a law that's greater than all laws. We get to live with a, a, a compass that is clear and defined. But I don't think we can do it in our own power because the flesh is strong. Remember Jesus, he says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are weak to do this because our natural inclination is to fight back and to, to attack back. If I get bitten, I bite in return. And yet James is saying, whether it's poverty, whatever it is you see in the world, whatever it is the thing you discriminate against, whatever it is the thing you, it, you devalue that person, you cannot do that as a follower of Christ. But then he goes into why it doesn't even work if you don't want to follow this new law. It says in verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you commit adultery but do not commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. If you try to live under the law of perfection and holiness, you will be broken. And what we do when we judge others and place them below us is we're living by the law of perfection. I'm here on the law of perfection. Here's you. That's why I can mistreat you. I'm higher on the law. I am way up there. I have not done a lot of bad things. That justifies me belittling you and telling you you're terrible because you're way below me on the list of law-breaking. James says, nope, if you've broken just one, you're on the bottom. If you've broken just one, you've broken them all. And you're you're not worthy to tell anyone where they are in any way, shape, or form. And so you can't live under the law and grace simultaneously. You cannot live under the law of holiness and grace simultaneously. You can't try to be Jesus and receive Jesus at the same time. You have to let him be Jesus and come into you, and he directs your path. The grace that we need is powerful. The grace that we need is that I recognize I cannot live up to the law. I cannot do enough. I have broken T's in my life. One broken T is enough. To break me from that law. It's hard when you grow up. Here's one of the hardest lives you can have. The hardest life you can have is grow up in the church and think you're a good person. One of the hardest lives you can have is grow up in a church, think you're a good person, and never think you need grace. That's one of the most challenging lives because you never get to the point where you recognize your need for a savior. And you never get to the point where you recognize that grace is what you've been given through faith. And so we need to recognize the fact that we are under this law of grace and we are to show that grace to everyone else. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For who said, oh sorry, verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. 
Mercy, what? Triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if someone comes in, what are we to show them? Mercy. Someone comes into your life, what are we to show them? Mercy. Why? Because you were given mercy. You see, this is the conversation we can have with God. God, I want your mercy, but it's unfair what they did to me. God, I want your forgiveness, but it's, I can't forgive them because it's unfair. What they did was wrong, and they don't deserve forgiveness. And when you get in that conversation with God, and you begin to say it was unfair, it was unjust, they don't deserve my forgiveness, guess what he can say to you? Is it fair for me to give you forgiveness? Are you guilty? Just like they're guilty? You want mercy. You want forgiveness. But are you willing to give that mercy and forgiveness? Every day. To everyone. If you really to summarize what being a follower of Christ is like, it is loving people and wanting the very best for everyone you meet. Even if they don't love you. Even if they mistreat you. Even if they're unkind, unfair, and unjust to you. You are to love them and want the very best for them. doesn't mean you let them run all over you. It doesn't mean you allow them. Actually, letting someone get away with evil is the worst thing you can do. Loving them is them having consequences. Loving them is trying to point them in the way of truth. Loving them is making sure they understand that what they're doing is wrong. But you do that not out of judgment and hatred, but out of love that they would come to the truth and they would change their ways and they would have the best that possibly can be. You see, God had a plan when he started the church. The plan was that his people would reflect his grace and his mercy to a world that desperately needed it. Because the world was filled with a lot of selfishness and a lot of injustice and a lot of anger. Just think of this. What if, what if every single one you know showed grace and mercy to everyone they know? What would that be like? The only thing keeping God's plan from working is us. The only thing keeping God's plan from making a major impact in the world is are we willing to be gracious and merciful? Are we willing to be what he made us to be? Because we will get what we give. God will give you what you give. And so if you're willing to give mercy, you will get mercy. Now you won't get, see here's the thing, and I think this is so important, and this was so valuable to me. Someone does something to you, and you show them grace, and you expect them to receive that grace and be thankful for it. Guess what? Most of the time, they're not going to be thankful for it. They're not even going to care that you were gracious to them, right? And here's what happened. I was gracious to them. I was merciful to them, but they never received it. They were never thankful for it. And if you keep doing it, waiting for them to give you the response you want, you will give up. Because it's not them who's going to give you the response. It's God. God is going to give you grace in some other area of your life. He's going to give you mercy in some other area of your life. He's going to bless you in some other way. But if you keep looking at other people, the people that offend you, the people that are doing this thing to you, if you're hoping that they're going to get it straight, they're going to say he's the greatest person, she's the greatest person ever because they show me mercy, you're going to get frustrated and you may give up. Because it's not about their response. 
It's about your love for God. And if you think God isn't going to bless you when you are faithful, then you've misread scripture. He says, I will bless you. I will be there. I will do something within your life that is beneficial for you when you live in obedience to me. And so we got to stop trying to get rewards from people. We got to stop trying to, it's the same thing. What can you give me? What can you give me? What can you give me? We're never to look at people in that way. We're always to look, what can I give you? What can I give you? What can I give you? Because the one who can truly give me something, you can never give me.